This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Regional word magic. Echo on Superman. The bane of werewolf movies. And the Dyatlov Pass incident. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features five original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to your existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots to bend your players' heads. Escape a labyrinthine airport. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. Available soon from your friendly local game store. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, we don't have uh, Doritos. We got us a mess of chili with no <laughs> beans. We got Merle Haggard coming alive instead of Peter Frampton. Why, it's a Texan chunk of the Gaming Hut. But don't worry, we're not staying there for long because who would want to do that? Louis Sylvester, beloved Patreon backer, says, I noticed that Ken said something about chunking the whole thing. And believe me, Louis, I've said it a lot. Having lived in both Texas and Oklahoma, I am familiar with the use of chunk instead of the more standard uh, hate speech there, Louis. Chuck, meaning to throw. <laughs> and I love hearing it used. There you go. Now you're there back. You go. That's, that's nothing but love, Ken. That's nothing but love. I wonder if you might have some interesting gaming ideas that could be centered around regional word magic, Robin. Uh, we've done word magic a little bit before, I think, the language magic, right? Where you have to learn right. the magic language. Right, so now we're going to get even more specific. It can't be more specific. I would like to point out that uh, chunk is not just Texas and Oklahoma. It's also in Liberia. They say chunk instead of chuck. Uh, because it was probably a southernism that survives only in the southern outliers in America of Texas and Oklahoma. So, there we are. That's our fact for today about chunk. Right. Uh, so I, I recently also had cause to think about uh, regional words. Uh, as I was in, I'm just back from uh, the Kraken in Germany, and uh, people were asking uh, what uh, Canadian-specific words there were, and I thought there must be a whole bunch of them. Yeah. Uh, but of course, the thing about regional words is, unless you move regions, and yeah. then yeah. someone says to you, "Chunk, what the hell? What? What uh, are you, you don't necessarily about? realize." Uh, what is specific to your area and what is, uh, uh, you know, just a general usage in, in the uh, language. And so I thought, oh, well, I know, I know soaker, uh, is a, a very, uh, Canadian specific and for a very good reason. Ken, do you know what a soaker is? I may have told you this already. Um, uh, if my only guess would be it would be a sudden rainstorm, but that can't be Canadian specific because first it of is all, what happens when one of your, uh, uh one of your boots, uh, and you're, you're walking along and you, uh, happen to step 
too deep into snow or slush that turns out to be all melted underneath, and your your footwear is flooded with cold, nasty water. Uh, so you, and that's a soaker. Your snow, yeah, you, you get a soaker. Yeah. So I I assume on the on the Inuit theory, uh, Canadians must have hundreds of words for getting uh, cold slush into their outer garments. Uh, well, actually, just that one. Because, just that uh, one. Nothing we, about we, your we mitten getting damp. Yeah, you, you know when to not just step into a bunch of sn- a, a bunch of snow on a, a on a on a wet day when it's all melting. It's that's. Oh, kids get soakers. Kids get soakers. And then they learn not to do it. Grown grown men become uh, devotees of good government and dry socks. Exactly. Good government and dry socks. <laughs> yes, that's probably even a better motto for our nation uh, than the one we have. <laughs> well, if you, I mean, the dry socks are at least achievable. Well, they're aspirational. Uh, uh, a double-double. Do yeah. you know what a double-double is? Uh, in America, it's a, a hamburger with two patties and two slices of cheese. Uh, well, this is a, a very uh, contrasty between the two countries. Uh, and uh, a double-double is a coffee with double cream and double sugar. Mm. Is that a Tim's elocution? Did they uh, that start is, there? It, it is Tim's-related, certainly. Um, so uh, the thing about uh, Tim Horton's coffee is you, you need to make it a double-double because... It's the liquid brown amphetamines and uh, and 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 not the coffee I typically choose to drink. This is, I mean, you talk about your regional variants. It's not the words. It's just how mean you are when you talk about Tim's. Exactly. Our Albertan listeners are all snapping off the podcast in anger. Right. Well, we could do a whole other food hut segment on on uh, the role of Tim's in our uh, national psyche. So, Patreon backers. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you want that, I'll line do up. It. Okay, so let's get on to magic and stuff. So, uh, yeah, meanwhile, back in Greyhawk, yeah, it's, you, you get lots of soakers while drinking your double doubles in certain regions. You, get, you get way more soakers in uh, Ravenloft, though. I'd imagine no da- no dry socks anywhere in Ravenloft. Yes, well, that's because uh, Count von Strahd deliberately leaves out slush so that people step in it, and then they have to go into his castle to get warm. It's a demi-plane of dread, after all. It's not a demi-plane of pleasantness. So let me once again try to get us onto the topic. (laughs) (laughs) Good good try, Robin. (laughs) I'm punchy. What's your excuse? (laughs) My excuse uh, is you're punchy. I don't need an excuse. (laughs) I'm the American one. I'm supposed to be drifty and ill-focused. So, it seems to me that... uh, the regional words would be the, the words that have uh, magical power because they are exclusive to you. And so that if you have, uh, and in a world where there is linguistic uh, magic, that you would want to keep the, your special words, the words of your region, the r- words that tell you uh, about uh, the sort of uh, uh, beef eating nature or your desire for uh, coffee that uh, jolts you awake or, or whatever it is in a fantasy world, that these would be the, the words with special resonance. And the fact that other people don't understand them is perhaps part of their power, perhaps all of their power, so that it might be a... uh, And so we have to start creating rules around which words become uh, magical. And that. uh, so you can't just make up a word and then uh, get everybody to speak it in a sort of mini-maxi sort of way in order to make it powerful. It has to be one that arises organically. And then uh, the question is, is this word that only we speak in our land, is this a useful word that can be turned into magic? Uh, is it ridiculous? Uh, because, of course, many slang terms are uh, sort of funny uh, or, uh, or utilitarian, like uh, loony and toony. Uh, these are uh, obvious terms in Canada for our, uh, for your beloved our $1 coin. 
Why is that obvious, you say, listeners? Well, that's because it had an image of a loon on it. It has an image of a loon. And so uh, when the $2 coin came out to replace our $2 bill, people just rhymed and called it a toonie. Um, but is there useful magic in that? I can't see what it would be. Is there useful magic in the word chunk? I don't know, Ken. Yeah. I, I guess this would be sort of a, a force field spell that uh, enables you to uh, chunk things around to take one object and chunk it into another object. It'd be the it'd be the the um uh, the Texas Oklahoma version of um uh, Bigby's magic hand or whatever is um uh, the invisible chunk. Right. Um. So this is seeming unfruitful unless yeah. you have a bunch of other regional words that like correspond to fireball spells. Here's the thing that I think if we're if first of all if you're just using it for flavor, then it's up to the GM and the GM can decide. Oh no! In this forest, uh, we druids call it uh, scrything when you uh, use your uh, your scythe to scry, and that's scrything. That's just what we call it. And then you can use it either just as a little note that these are the annoying druids who are picky about what they say, or you can say, "Oh, this uh, these druids are using their scythe to scry a lot more than they use ponds or mirrors or." Uh, other uh, uh, gemstones or glass balls or other scrying sorts of things. And so it has shifted their culture. Or you can have it be that these druids, because they've sort of reified it with a little term, now they can't, they have to use their size to scry and they can't scry with something else. And so the, the language constrains them in sort of a strong sapir wharf kind of a way. The way to do it as a player thing, I think, is to allow players either once per level or once per time they are creative to come up with a thing that their character says from their locality that is not a thing that is said elsewhere in the world. And that if they, you know, sort of uh, dying earth style, if they can use it fluidly in play, they get a mechanical benefit. So maybe it's just a mechanical benefit to, um, I say, I'm going to chunk that um, uh, fireball and the wizard across the way says, oh, you're from South Helmy. I'm from South Helmy. That's great. Let's team up and swap spells. Or it can be that because the word chunking the fireball has a specific context to you, you get a plus one when you do that. And the way that you prevent the person from just getting an automatic plus one to all their fireballs is that you then have a a a, a countervailing minus if they're if if they're um uh, if they ever say anything else like cast a fireball it's like oh i'm sorry you minus one you didn't really believe it you didn't chunk it um and then that at least gets them into the sense of thinking about the words that their character uses in a very magic-y way that seems like it might be a little clunky in play but uh it would be at least a start and i think you have to provide some sort of benefit maybe a story benefit but ideally a mechanical benefit if what you're trying to emphasize is that learning these regional words and using them gives you power and so you come up against this guys from the other fireball and they're fireballing the heck out of you and you're like oh man and you so you figure out that when they throw a fireball they sling it they're fireball slingers, and that's what they use because you notice that all the people in that in that island use slings, and so everything is slinging. And so once you figured it out, you can say, "I'm slinging a fireball at him," even though you take the minus. You've now broken the exclusivity of their magic, and so now they're at uh, minus one or minus two because suddenly they don't have exclusive rights to that special magic word. Does that make sense, or am I just babbling? Uh, that makes sense. Uh, a way that I'm sort of headed here, though, is. 
what if the using regionalisms uh, that that there isn't a literal connection between the word you're using and the magic you evoke? Not that you know casting a soaker spell gives the enemy a soaker, or casting a double double spell is a buff that gives you energy uh, and haste. More powerful because I think again the problem is. Those are funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's just amusing. Um, so what if the use of regional terms, in fact, evokes the sphere of magic associated uh, with your land? Uh, so that, uh, you know, the uh, in a fantasy uh, America, uh, and I think really we'd want to break down America into its constituent uh, regions with their right, own. Yeah. Uh, but for the purpose of this discussion, you know, uh, the fantasy uh, America uh, spells, they would have, you know, extra... Uh, bluff spells and uh, they'd be pretty good at ultraviolence and uh, the uh, the energy of the uh, the Canadian wizards. We would have the you know the power of the the howling north and also uh, you know uh, spells of calm and contentment. Calm spells, yep. You know, and uh, rather than allow uh, uh, now we don't want to impose national archetypes on uh, on uh, other nations who will uh, right. uh, get angry and, and delete their Patreon backer uh, pledges. So uh, imagine, folks, uh, the uh, what the magic associated with your own uh, nation might be. Um, and uh, you could also posit that uh, there are national gods uh, in a fantasy world, and therefore, uh, you know, that uh, Uncle Sam... Uh, has uh, certain powers and the uh, magical beaver. Uh, it is Uncle Sam who teaches you certain words that only uh, you can say. And in this magical word, world, it might be that other people can't even say those words. Uh, that we cannot, uh, if we are not from America, we are uh, uh, not devotees of Uncle Sam. We cannot uh, call a, a hamburger a double double or refer to chunking things uh, in in the garbage. Nothing is awesome for you. Yes. You have to come up with your own adjective. Right. And uh, those of us that uh, if you're not a, a follower of the Magic Beaver, well, then uh, you can't uh, you can't say soaker. You, you no. literally cannot form those words. You, you, you can't say Timbits. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and even worse, you can't eat Timbits. You can right. only eat the, out, the rest of donuts, uh, yeah. which are totally different in every way from a Timbit. <laughs> its exactly. form factor changes everything about them. Now that there are some fantasy worlds where there's like, you know, the nation of thieves and the the nation of uh, machinists and so forth. And those raise questions <laughs> as to like, oh, how does the nation of thieves economy work? Uh, what? Uh, but uh, if it's just the idea that, you know, you may uh, and, you know, people from a given nation may or may not choose uh, to give homage and receive magic from their national god, they may, you know, continue to get magic from uh, St. Cuthbert or Ares or, or whoever it is, but there's in our uh, uh, post-magical apocalypse world that we're uh, thinking of. Uh, and again, I think you would want to break that down uh, further because uh, in order to allow people to interact with each other, you would come up with, you know, the Midwesterner spells and the, uh, the coastal, uh, the, the West Coast spells and the Eastern seaboard spells and the spells of the South. And, uh, well, you can uh, you can simply say that um, if you decide to follow a local deity, the spell becomes more powerful. So if you follow a god of the south side of Chicago, Bud Billiken, then your spell is vastly powerful, but only on the south side of Chicago, right? It drops off dramatically in the rest of Chicago and then barely works at all in the Midwest or America or, God forbid, overseas. So it becomes sort of a... A uh, situation where 
you know, you'd want the campaign to be picaresque where they're traveling around all the place. Yeah. So that it isn't just, oh, well, you're from the south side. I'm from the south side, too. And everyone just always gets plus five. Right. Because otherwise, it's all up to the tactics are all about just luring the Chicagoans out of their turf and so forth. Yeah. Like, that's going to happen. Um <laughs> It's all just a trick to keep Chicagoans on their turf. On their turf. <laughs> we That's tell right. Them we they just have tell magic, them that they, they have magic. You stay there. It's too magical. <laughs> can't go. You mean cold. You just mean cold. That's all you mean. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that if you have a thing where you are choosing what level of bonus to get under what circumstance. So if you uh, choose the south side of Chicago, that's plus five. Chicago, plus four. Uh, the Midwest is plus three. America is plus two. You know, whatever. Earth is plus one. So yeah. if you fight moon men or something, I don't know, whatever the number is, but you, and in, but and you in can, England, your, your lungs fill up with uh, local mold and you can't cast spells at all. Right. And, and, and so the, the, the notion is that it's just your devotion to a local deity is either more appreciated or more effective because the power is so concentrated there. You know, whoever the, um, uh, the, 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 the deity of the Midwest, probably Ceres, is, is just giving out corn magic to everybody. And she don't have time for your little problems. But Bud Billiken, he's only got like, you know, a million and a half constituents and only a fraction of them do magic. So he's there. He's there for you, giving out the good spells. And, and it might well be that you can perform, uh, his magic far from Chicago. But in order to do so, you have to rev yourself up by boasting about how your city is the best city in the world, which Ken explains a lot and I think is a thought that can help whisk us to the next segment. You used to be a spy. You were part of the clandestine world, backed by the full strength of the security state. Then you asked the wrong questions. You found the truth. You found the vampires and got burned. You're all alone against them. One player, one game master. Create your own agent or take on the role of Layla Khan, ex-MI6 officer confronting her half-remembered past as a vampire thrall. Powered by the gumshoe one-to-one rules designed for the thrilling intensity of head-to-head play. Play through three complete adventures for Layla Khan or use them as templates to create your own mysteries. We'll give you the tools you need to battle the undead princes and crime lords. All alone. But will it be enough? Find out with Knights Black Agents Solo Ops. At your security cleared local retailer or from the Pelgrane store. It's time once more for that most resonant of huts. The hut that we look up in the sky and we see the thunder, we see the movement of the clouds, we see the, the power of the wind, we feel the heat of the fire, and we turn those things into stories because we are in the mythology hut. And in this uh, time, a particular modern myth uh, comes under our microscope at the behest of beloved Patreon backer Nikolai Hansen, who asks, and this is a, a question directed to you, Ken, Me? what did Umberto Eco think of Superman? And how was he wrong? Umberto Eco, of course, is the uh, late semiotician and novelist, uh, best known for uh, his uh, exciting uh, thriller-based uh, novels, uh, The Name of the Rose and Foucault's Pendulum, and for many other somewhat less thrilling novels. Uh, but Ken, he was also a... Uh, the semiotician part comes into uh, uh, his 
a vast corpus of essays, and one of them was about Superman. So uh, before you start explaining why he was wrong, can you encapsulate his argument from his point of view? Okay. Um, uh, this is from a uh, essay that he uh, theoretically wrote as a review of uh, The Adventures of Superman, uh, and we will pause to laugh at that notion. But it's called The Myth of Superman. He wrote it in about 1972, I want to say. And his thesis, uh, which we will set out as neutrally as we possibly can, is as follows. That uh, Superman is a different sort of, uh, of mythic hero than, say, Heracles is. Um, his uh, argument is that Superman, like modern characters, his adventures take place in the present day, whereas Echo's argument is that Hercules' adventures or Heracles' adventures always took place in the mythic past, the Illud Tempest. And so uh, you always understood that the story of Heracles was done. When you, when, no matter if you carve something from the birth of Hercules, you are implying the entire career of Hercules. Whereas since uh, Superman uh, does not have a complete myth and in 1972 could not have a complete myth, Superman operates on a different level that his stories take place in the quotidian present. And then there is a, a lengthy segment in which he discusses the nature of uh, the, the human uh, uh, experience with time. And that the future uh, inhibits and creates the present, the present recapitulates the past, and this is the human experience. And that after the breaking of traditional culture, in which the stories of things that had always happened were good enough, and we go into a world where people are beginning to look to escape from tradition, you begin to get novels with surprises. And so rather than no one, he says, is surprised by Oedipus, they are surprised, however, by Jean Valjean. It's like, oh my goodness, I did not see that coming. And the I did not see that coming becomes a new quality of adventure. But right. his argument is that for And, and this a is why this segment is in the mythology hut, because exactly. he is distinguishing between uh, mythology, which is eternal and in the past, and fiction, uh, which is uh, of the moment and uh, and changes as culture changes. Right. But his argument is that because of the very specific ways in which Superman is created, Superman must happen in the present like a novel, and you must be surprised by his given adventure of, oh, goodness, that's how he defeated Lex Luthor or Mr. McPitalik. But you can never be surprised by Superman because he can never actually change. He can never... Uh, a move forward in time uh, because he is a myth. And if a myth gets married to Lois Lane or uh, dies like Heracles does, then the myth is over. He's not immortal. He's, he's not uh, the mythic figure that, that we wish him to be. So Ken, when you put it that way, Umberto Eco is wrong about Superman. Yeah. Well, it's not when I put it that way. It's when Umberto Eco puts it that way. Yes. <laughs> And then he uh, makes another argument that the, the scale of Superman is strange on its own way because unlike traditional mythic heroes who change the world, uh, Superman does not change the world. He just fights, uh, supervillains that are ephemeral and organized oh, crime. Umberto Echo just keeps getting wronger about Superman. He is, he is, he is. Um, and, uh, the Superman's, uh, goodness is exclusively civic consciousness as dis as separated from political consciousness. And so that um, uh, this uh, echo does not quite argue, but he implies is the inevitable nature of serial heroes such as Superman 
uh, and he uh, uses the uh, examples of all the other DC heroes and some of the Marvel heroes, although he says that the Marvel heroes are at least attempting to uh, sneak around the sides of, of some of those uh, zones. Right. Uh, but, but that's sort of where his, his theory uh, leaves off is the notion of Superman as a mythic hero who is nonetheless constrained to act only in the civic sphere and only in the present. And therefore this in this contradiction makes the myth of Superman. He hints fundamentally unsatisfying as a myth and uh, not good. Uh, but he, he's, 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 he gives a sort of to be sure people love Superman like they love detective stories. And he's then wrong about detective stories for like four paragraphs. But then he gets back around into talking about Superman. So that's the that's Echo's argument. And yes, you're correct. He is wrong about Superman. I didn't make him be wrong about Superman. I'm pro Umberto Echo. Ask anyone. Breaks my heart that he's wrong. Well, it's it's not his fault that he didn't read Hamlet hit points because he was writing 1972. So right. Yeah. yeah. And in fairness, he also didn't read Crisis on Infinite Earths or Alan Moore's Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow or any of the other mythical moments that do complete superhero uh, Superman as a Heracles figure that we know how Superman dies in the true redaction. Uh, we know how Superman marries Lois Lane. We know all these things now. And just as everyone who talks about Hercules really only wants to talk about the cool 12 labors, you can't blame the comic book people for really just wanting to talk about him punching robots. Right. Cause, uh, uh, the thing about both Superman and, and Heracles is they both reboot a lot. Mm -hmm. They do. And that's, that, that's something that I, when I reread the essay was like, Oh, he's also wrong about Heracles. Yeah. And again, he's not a classicist. So you can't really blame him for that. And at some point you can make the argument, certainly by medieval times, people were not adding new Hercules adventures that I know of. Uh, cue Jess Nevins getting on the bat phone and parading <laughs> me. But, um, but they certainly were adding new uh, Hercules stories, even down into antiquity. Uh, you know, Apollonius of Rhodes is one of the most famous guys who suddenly say, hey, you know, it'd be cool is if Hercules went on Jason's voyage and this is what would happen. Yeah. It's, whenever a, a mythological figure or a legendary figure, uh, if we can dis distinguish between the characters, the gods who only interact with other gods or perhaps you know, turn into uh, swans in order to go around skeeving around. But other than that, are sort of off up on the top of Olympus, but you have other gods, demigods, uh, quasi gods who are hanging around with mortals and going on adventures with them. Uh, that whenever you're in an era that is uh, talking about a legendary figure, they're continually inventing new stories about them. And it's only when they lose their cultural currency, when the culture that created them uh, is replaced by another culture, do you, do they, you know, well, we're not going to make stories up about uh, Heracles anymore because we've got Charlemagne to write, to make up stories about or right. Arthur or uh, whoever it is, is that uh, in their day, you know, there's no monthly comic book to look at. But people are always making up stuff about those characters and continue to do so as long as they seem um, culturally resonant. And of course, they can make comebacks because there's still stories being Hercules made up himself about. is a Marvel superhero now. Exactly. So and there we are. Uh, as we... Uh, touched on earlier uh people keep uh retelling arthur stories uh often taking out uh, the interesting parts of their stories right. yes well d the fact that they're told badly does not invalidate uh our point that echo is wrong about how they're told no i i wasn't <laughs> making a point to invalidate our point that's that's not how this podcast works at all um so yeah, uh we, i guess that's how we run yes so have have we failed to do anything other than uh, have we 
gone past asserting that he is wrong without uh, because of course that I would describe Superman as an iconic hero who uh, we are not surprised uh, by what happens in a Superman story any more than we're surprised by a story about Heracles uh, because uh, Superman is going to triumph eventually by expressing his iconic ethos of the uh, the benevolent father from another world. Hmm, I wonder what I wonder what mythic structure that is dealing on. That's unprecedented. That the uh, we're not if we are surprised by a Batman story, uh, that means something non-Batman like has has occurred in it, and we will then be annoyed. So we're we're not looking for surprise in a. Uh, a story of any, any of these modern myths either. We are looking for a recapitulation, a superficial uh, series of uh, variations that uh, in fact leads us to the thing about Superman that we want to see. And that thing about Superman can vary slightly from story to story. We might want to see one in which he, uh, you know, overcomes his uh, problem with kryptonite. We might want to see another superhero star, uh, Superman story in which he uh, saves his friend Jimmy Olsen. But within the sort of panoply of things that can be a Superman story, we want our Superman stories to do those things in a way that uh, is superficially unpredictable. But really what we want is to have our uh, set of Superman-related desires satisfied yet again uh, in a uh, somewhat novel pattern. And uh, surprise, that's bad when you're talking about an iconic hero. Surprise means, you know, uh, Batman. someone saws Batman's legs off and then he has to stop being Batman. And right. that would be highly disappointing uh, for Batman and for us. Yes. Um, he does um, come tippy-toeing right up to the edge of that argument when he talks about mystery novels. And his argument is that we do not read... Uh, and he goes very deep into Nero Wolf. He says, we don't read Nero Wolf to find out who did it. We read Nero Wolf to see Nero Wolf uh, pout and go tend his orchids and be a jerk to Inspector Kramer and to Archie and just sort of Nero Wolf around the place. And at the end, someone's like, oh, I confess I, you know, murdered my brother or whatever. And yeah, fine. But we're actually just there to watch Nero Wolf be a big goof. And... I think that in a big, brilliant goof and in, I, I think in the, to some extent, uh, that is not too many countries away from what you're saying. I mean, you, you would argue that a Nero Wolf in which he's just a big goof, but does not resolve matters for justice is still a wrong Nero Wolf story. Right, Cause he's not fulfilling his iconic ethos. Whereas, um, by the strict letter of Echo's argument, a Nero Wolf story where after the everyone's gathered in the in in, in the library, uh, Nero Wolf um, just gets mad at them for smoking and sends them away without solving the mystery. Would still be a satisfying Nero Wolf story, and I would argue with you that no, it would not. But he does make something of an argument of the joy in pattern that you get from Nero Wolf, which he then does not quite uh, extend to Superman. Uh, about an argument of joy and pattern. And he does not make the argument, despite having begun with an argument that myths are traditional stories that are told as a whole, and that the whole story is the enjoyment for a traditional culture, he does not then make the argument that the whole story told in fractal or microscopic form, uh, which is the story of the iconic hero, who nine times out of ten, uh, certainly in the case of Superman, uh, restores order to a broken universe, 
fills a, a ritualistic or prayerful expression of, well, my life may be, uh, you know, confusing and messed up, but at least Superman stopped those robots. And so that's good. I have been connected with what's right and true with truth and justice in the American way. And so I feel like, you know, my, my, my God energy is back up. Right. And I, I think that in, in a lot of ways, Echo, like you say, he's wrong because he uh, has the dis- misfortune of writing before Alan Moore and Hamlet's hit points. But also I think that he's got maybe some ideological priors about forms of art that he is just not quite willing to extend uh, his, you know, individually sharp observations to question. Do you think that's fair? Yeah. And very briefly also, I don't think it's that significant that myths occur in the past and that uh, Superman and uh, similar heroes are set in the present day because at the time people were telling stories about Heracles. It was not uh, the culture of Heracles is the culture of the people telling those stories. Yes, this was a thing that had already happened, but people, let me tell you about the ancient past. It's like uh, all stories are uh, up until re- uh, recently in the age of uh, fiction, where historical fiction is a thing, are full of back projection. And you would imagine Heracles moving around in a Greece that was essentially like your own. And uh, he'd be drinking the same wine that you did and uh, uh, eating the, the same flatbread with the same olive oil on it. And uh, that those were not, the, the fact that it was uh, an, a primal story or an origin story from of your culture uh, was uh, not the main point, but it was a story about your culture, that uh, Heracles' adventures were essentially happening in your present, even though they had already happened, and uh, you you know can't just go down the street and talk to Heracles. Yeah, I think that not to change pivotal cultural thinkers whose last names begin with E, but I think Eliade's Illud Tempest does serve a special role in myth-making that is not necessarily the same uh, as just, you know, that your, your recognition of Greece is Greece, that there is a belief even amongst people who are telling the story of Heracles that things that happened before the Trojan war were different than things that happened after the Trojan war. There is a sense of a change of a phase shift, even though, as you say, he's eating this, he's not like, you know, this is uh, Heracles. Look at him driving that old fashioned bicycle. Ha ha. What a dork. But, to you, and I argue this because we can see some of the same effect happen when you do Sherlock Holmes stories that are now the 1895-ness of them becomes their own sort of Illid Tempest. And to the same degree that Metropolis or Gotham City become, even though we recognize that they are American cities, they are also special magical places. They are, you know, they, they are their own thing and that they are different. And it was, you know, remarked at the time that they were different than the Marvel heroes are all in real Manhattan and you could meet Spider-Man just walking down the street. But of course, Marvel's New York rapidly stops looking like regular New York, even in the pages of Marvel, even in the 1960s. So there is, there is a quality to that mythic framing that I think is true of Heracles and Superman. Um, but I, again, I think that the argument that it's specifically password is maybe overstated. Um, and again, um, uh, the notion of knowing how it comes out, uh, I would argue that um, this, that is a purely local argument because at some point someone heard the story of Oedipus for the first time. It did not just 
glumph into people's consciousness and a bunch of guys sitting around in, you know, uh, Mickeny were like, you know, it'd be awesome. Oedipus. Yeah. That time when he did that thing, you know, that that's not how stories function at all. And the fact that we don't know what bright spark came up with Oedipus doesn't mean no one came up with Oedipus. Even if there was a real King Oedipus who really had a crazily unfortunate prophecy, uh, which I don't necessarily believe, but someone then put that story down in a way that when it was told next town over, people went, holy crap, really? That poor king, right? Right. Uh, well, I think it's about time that we uh, hit our special watches that causes Superman to come and rescue us from a segment that is going on too long. <laughs> Curse you, Mixus Pedelec! And uh, use it to uh, leap uh, up in the air like, like a bird, like a plane, over this next commercial message to see what waits for us on the other side. The Best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast from getting chunked into the memory hole by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... John W.S. Marvin. Volpine. Jamie Twine. Ariel Celeste. And Corey Welch. The whir of the projector, the smell of popcorn, the slight stickiness beneath our feet as we move to our center seats... And the smell of Wolfsbane as, oh my God, someone's been torn apart. Robin, ah! we're in a werewolf edition of the Cinema Hut. And today's topic, as thrown up on the screen along with limbs, is uh, structural problems as werewolf movies Wolfsbane. Uh, and I suspect you have a whole argument Ready to go. Ready to go. On this topic. Yeah. So let's hear it. So, uh, so I was watching, uh, the Hammer, uh, film, uh, Curse of the Werewolf, uh, for the right. first time recently. And, uh, this is a, uh, uh, that's the, uh, one with Oliver Reed. And, uh, it's, uh, directed by Terrence Fisher. And it was part of their, uh, deal with Universal that allowed them to kind of edge a little closer to doing the different Universal monster movies. And, uh, that it has an interesting production history, which uh, is not particularly germane to this uh, segment. This but topic. One thing about it, and it's based on a novel, which it essentially uh, entirely departs from. Yeah, because the novel is not actually about a werewolf, <laughs> as I have said a thousand times. And also, uh, it is it is like uh, 
Talk about movies that take a long time to pose their core question. Structurally, uh, it, it takes half the entire length of the film for Oliver Reed to even show up, and then another quarter of the length of it for anything werewolfy to occur. And, uh, and then when it does occur, uh, as, as is quite often the case in werewolf movies that are not the wolfman, the uh, climactic sequence is uh, abrupt and rather disappointing. And I got to uh, thinking about, you know, th this is a really extreme case of having a, a big old structural uh, uh, problem. Um, and, you know, the first half is just this sort of uh, anodyne, meandering, uh, phony period thing where it's like, who's the protagonist? What do we care about? It's it's immaterial. But, you know, kids were, were at the drive-in waiting for the werewolf to show up. And it got me thinking about uh, other uh, films that follow on the pattern of the Wolfman and how uh, they almost all, like uh, American Werewolf uh, in London, which I know a lot of other people are more fond of than I am. And uh, But I'm a structuralist and can't help but notice that it too is all over the map and also uh, ends pretty abruptly. It's just, uh, to, to my mind, doesn't sort of have a, a satisfying escalation or culmination that it's really a whole bunch of uh, sometimes interesting gestures and sequences butting up against each other, but uh, doesn't uh, fully pay off. Or uh, And of course, the remake of The Wolfman is a huge mess and uh, is also one of yeah. the ones where you're looking at it going, no one here actually wanted to make this movie. <laughs> yeah, their, their agents all wanted them to make them, but nobody came to the crux of, uh, of what it was they wanted to say or do uh, in, in remaking the Wolfman. So before I give you my theory as to why this is, why it is harder to structure a, were a Wolfman movie than a, uh, a vampire movie, a vampire a Dracula movie or a, a Frankenstein. Uh, do you agree that uh, this, the, the werewolf is the most difficult uh, pattern to uh, satisfyingly pull off? Well, I don't have a theoretical argument, although I'm open as I always am. But I will say that practically, having watched a lot of movies and read a lot of books, it has always interested me that the seemingly can't-fail werewolf genre fails so many times. Uh, because unlike the vampire, which has to be externally focused, there is always like, oh, I, that, that Hungarian or that lady, they're going to bite me, but it's kind of sexy. Um, the werewolf story is like, it's, it's, we, we talked about Oedipus. It's literally one of the oldest stories in the world. Oh my God, I can't control my impulses. My id is going to go nuts and murder a bunch of people. Yeah, it's a, it's a deeply resonant personal fear. Oh my God, I'm turning into a monster. So, uh, why right. doesn't that and work? And you'd think that that would be the easiest movie in the world to make or the easiest novel in the world to write. But I will say, and I will, I've said it before, uh, uh, to inhalations of shock at my boldness. There are no good werewolf novels or certainly no great werewolf novels. And there are very, very vanishingly few, uh, good werewolf movies and almost no great werewolf movies. Right. And in some cases, I would be inclined to say, well, that's, um, uh, that's a uh, good old um, uh, Sturgeon's Law working its way out for you. But the werewolf seems like such a slam dunk and is in practice not that uh, it baffles and amazes me. Right. And you can increase the number of good werewolf movies by uh, 
looking at a couple of things that the person is not turning into a wolf per se. So Cronenberg's The Fly is perhaps the other good werewolf movie. <laughs> um, and there are other uh, good werewolf movies that do not follow the Wolfman template. So The Howling, for example, uh, not a masterpiece, but fun and well done, is yeah. more of a, a witch movie, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, except Because the there's a secret cult, right? Right. And Dog Soldiers, again, is not really a werewolf movie, even though they're fighting werewolves. They could be fighting trolls, uh, and the movie would be the same. Right. And this gets us to why the structural problem and that's because the antagonist and the protagonist in a werewolf movie are one person um and that is uh, as we've already said emotionally resonant but from a structural level hard to generate hard to incident off. from right that the uh, protagonist and the antagonist never meet <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, they it turns into one and turns into the other and then so how do you have stuff happen in a, in a Wolfman movie. Well, eventually, you know, the stuff that happens is you try to under, undertake ways of not transforming and then you do transform and then you turn into the villain of the movie from being the hero of the movie and then villagers shoot you and you fall off a roof or uh, right. get shot in the London underground. And there's, so it's like, it's the snakes on a plane problem, right? It's the, there's just not that many things for snakes to do on a plane. And also uh, there's no way for the antagonist and the protagonist to interact because not only are they the same person, but they uh, uh, switch bodies. And so they don't have anything to do with each other. So um, even in the, 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 uh, the Lon Chaney Wolfman, arguably the protagonist is the Claude Rains figure, is the father. Mm-hmm. Um, the and uh, that uh, is the secret sauce, I think, that makes that, work along with the fact that it's the first Wolfman movie uh, that Lon Chaney uh, Jr. gives his uh, one great performance and uh, that there's just that it just and it's part of that whole streak of the universal gothic uh, backlock gothic uh, style and you know it, it it works in spite of the structural issues of the werewolf movie does this sound like a crazy theory to you um I I think that it's not a crazy theory, and I will tell you why, uh, for two reasons. One, because you can see the other film that solves it uh, by a perhaps easier way than um, finding Lon Chaney and getting the one great performance out of him, uh, is Ginger Snaps, which is a legitimately great werewolf movie, which I believe I watched for the first time at your house. Yes. But that's a movie in which the protagonist is the sister of the werewolf, and we care just as intensely about both her and her werewolf sister as we do. So the simple solution of kill the werewolf is off the table. And so by creating two sympathetic characters and mirroring them and twinning them structurally, Ginger Snap solves that werewolf problem while still getting 95% of what you want out of a proper werewolf movie, the sheer momentary id joy of yeah if i turned into a werewolf i knew i'd eat that guy that yes, jerk the, exactly and, and so, so that the the protagonist of that film is is the sister and the sympathetic antagonist is the one who's been bitten and that's right um, and of course there's also superbly executed and uh and uh, brilliant and funny and and all the other things but but the other thing is that that exactly points up the problem with american werewolf in london on a structural level and i think i enjoy watching it more than you did but i agree with you that structurally it is kind of weird and flat especially for a john landis movie of all things because who should be the protagonist dies 
it's Ghost Jack, right? Yeah, and yeah, uh, I would be Werewolf, all over a, a remake that is from Ghost Jack's point of view. Right. And and so Werewolf David becomes the sole viewpoint character. So we see the person who should be our protagonist just showing up and saying, you know, remember your oath or whatever he says. And he turns into the foil. Yeah. Yeah. He turns. Yeah, and so it, it sort of like it loses, it, it loses that immediate narrative momentum, that structure that you need for the story to really, really, really work. And again, I very much enjoy American War of London. I think it's a terrific movie. I think there are so many great things that happen in it. It's a case of a movie which is, after all, a, a, a visual medium succeeding despite its structure as opposed to because of it. But again, you know, you have to be yeah, this so tall you, to go you, on that You can ride. like that movie and still say it has structural problems. Yeah, right. Um, and, and it absolutely does. And I think that the fact that that is so very clearly a structural problem indicates that you're onto something when you say, here's the problem with werewolf movies, is that the protagonist, the antagonist, are the same character. Well, if that isn't a, a note of summation, uh, I've never heard one. So, uh, exactly. Be- before the moon rises and undoes our uh, unusually uh, neat conclusion to a segment, uh, let's get out of here. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. It's time once more to enter a hut that is uh, at first somewhat ill-defined in its theme. We can't quite pin down what's going on. Oh, but wait, we're looking at the window, and there, out on the moors, is is an alien big cat, and it's screaming its full head off looking for alien big kibble. And there in the corner, oh, sitting by the round table, drinking their kombucha, we see the Nordic alien and the gray alien. And as usual, they are ranking on the uh, lizard man alien because we are in the Elliptony hut. And this time around, uh, beloved Patreon backer Mikey Ham wants to know about the Dyatlov Pass incident. And this is such a uh, sort of a pivotal uh, eleptonic mystery that uh, when uh, Mikey made a suggestion, I thought to myself, oh, we've done that already. But when I looked in the search bar for our past episodes we hadn't done it already that in and in of itself the mystery segment that i have partially in my memory but clearly is in an alternate timeline could itself be an electronic mystery but not the electronic mystery of this segment which that would be a little meta yeah you're you're gonna even for us yes so uh this is something that happens uh as you might guess from the the, uh, construction of the word dyatlov in russia happens in 1959 uh, on uh, February 1st and 2nd, 
a team of nine people from the Earl Polytechnical Institute are out exploring some mountainous terrain. And then, Ken, things get weird, and that's where you come in. Yep. Um, and to begin with, what happens is that uh, nine people are found dead in the Ural Mountains. And in 1959 in the Soviet Union, the mystery might be, why only nine? But this is, in fact, uh, the Khrushchev Soviet Union, when only a relatively few people were being murdered for no reason. So uh, what happened is that these guys are all uh, skiers and hikers. They are experienced skiers and hikers. They're good at it. Um, and their plan is to ski and hike over the Ural Mountains uh, to a place called Oroton. And um, I will just uh, give you a little hint when I say that the indigenous Mansi people of the Ural Mountains, uh, in their language, Oroton means don't go there. <laughs> so pay attention to the, to the locals, people. Um, and they do it in February, which is not a time that I would go over the Ural Mountains, no matter how good I was at skiing. But there we are. And they start out. Uh, they they cache a bunch of food and supplies on the one side of the Ural Mountains. They're going over the pass, which is called the Dyatlov Pass, after the leader of this group of skiers because they die in it. Or actually, they die near it on the side of a mountain called Kolat Siakal, which in the Monsi language means dead mountain. Um, now... Uh, Wikipedia helpfully informs us that, oh, no, the, the Monsi name a lot of things dead. They don't mean anything by it. That's just normal. <laughs> but then they live in an extremely dangerous <laughs> environment where it's super yeah. important to distinguish the places you don't go from the places where it is safe to be. And it may very well be that category A is considerably larger than category B. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, if, if I'm in charge of labeling the Ural Mountains, a lot of it is going to be labeled Oratin. Yeah. Don't go there. Right. Bad Omen Town. Yeah. Murder place cold hell spot that's what yes. i'm gonna call it and indeed it was a cold hell spot because uh weeks later people were expecting to get a letter from the from the climbers or a telegram and no word and no word so they go up to the pass and they find them dead of hypothermia with severe chest trauma and other uh, injuries. Uh, in many cases, the injuries were bone breaking injuries that left no uh, bruises on the flesh. In one case, a person uh, uh, was missing her tongue, uh, which is uh, creepy. And in all cases, they were either half clothed or unclothed, implying that something had struck them in a panicked state uh, that they didn't have time to put on their snowsuits. And that explains, of course, why they mostly died of hypothermia and exposure. Um, and it became a sort of nine days wonder and a mystery. And then the Soviet government said, we don't have nine days wonders in the people's paradise. <laughs> Tossed the whole thing into a classified file where no one ever asked inconvenient questions again, because that's how that works. Except that they did. Uh, right. But they did uh, put up a, a monument to, to the group. So, uh, yes, they didn't put it totally down the memory hall. And in the report, the deaths were attributed to... Uh, and obviously the original phrase would have been in Russian, but it's still resonant in English, an unknown compelling force. And if you <laughs> want to ensure that your uh, incident where people die on the side of the mountain becomes an eleptonic mystery for the ages, uh, in your report, use the words unknown compelling force. Uh, because, of course, like any good eleptonic mystery, this uh, inspires all sorts of uh, speculation as to what possibly could have happened to these people. Uh, and uh, what are the leading speculations uh, around this 
a weird uh, set of, uh, of injuries uh, that does not have uh, uh, this compelling force. It's unknown, Ken. It's unknown. It says so. Um, well, uh, I think, I, do we want to start with the fun ruiner or end with the fun ruiner? Uh, let's get the fun ruiner out of the way. We don't want to end the, end the episode on a fun ruin. Right. Well, the fun ruiner theory, which, which is in fairness, the first theory that the investigators came up with and is probably the true one is they were hit by an avalanche that it was, the weather was really terrible. Uh, the, the, the investigators who came by two weeks later were like, the weather seems fine. What could have caused this? They weren't there two weeks ago and investigation has determined. Yeah, it was a bad, bad blizzard and a bad, bad snowstorm and a lot of wind. And, uh, what happened is they set up their big nine man tent. Uh, they were all huddled together in their tent. They'd taken off their, their parkas because they'd gotten soakers, I'm sure. And, uh, or the Russian equivalent of soakers. And believe me, I'll bet Russia's got a million regional <laughs> words for getting snow on you. I mean, Canadians look like Miamians. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of that distinction. Right. And so the, um, uh, and then so the, the theory is that the avalanche began and they were worried that they, it would collapse their tent onto them. And so they fled their tent and then the avalanche went a different way, perhaps carrying them down the mountainside and then crushed them under big piles of snow and ice, which create the injuries that uh, many of them are found on. And, uh, that this avalanche could have been uh, exacerbated by what is called a catabatic wind, which is a hellacious super wind that blows up. Um, basically, it's caused, I think, by temperature differences on either side of a very narrow place, like over a mountain slope, for example. And the sudden wind um, uh, could have uh, made the tent, uh, you know, untenable. They run out into it and then it freezes them solid. And that's why they died so very, very fast. Uh, the final theory that is not quite fun ruining because it's getting into sort of fun is that sometimes when wind at a high rate goes over some kinds of mountains, you get infrasound because it uh, sets up a resonant uh, frequency in the rocks or in the snow. Certainly anyone who's ever been out on a big snow field on a mountain has heard the sort of weird creakety creak noise that snow makes, making that in a infrasound spec uh, frequency, then it causes panic. And so what panicked them might have just been infrasound. And the, they had an infrasound panic moment caused by the wind. They run out of their camp, their, their, their tent. And then the sad uh, consequence of being out of your tent in February in the Ural Mountains with no clothes on takes its place. The missing tongue is caused in all of these theories by an animal coming along and eating the tongue because it was sticking out and looked tasty. Uh, that is the uh, conjuries of fun ruiner theories that you can take with you to the fun ruining bank and right. stay there. And certainly if you're being killed in avalanche, you could also bite off your own tongue. You could bite off your own tongue, especially if a giant piece of snow smacks you in the head. Yeah. So, uh, we're not here, though, to give the fun ruining version. We are not. Well, we were, but now we're not. Right. So, literally, this could be the elliptony hut, and this could have been a uh, an attack or test of elliptone ray technology. Exactly. Because of anomalously high levels of radioactivity that were reported to be found on four of the body's clothes and one of the actual bodies. Now, this is reported, and I have not bothered to go digging through the actual uh, Soviet reports, most of which I think have been put on the web now, but are still in Russian. Um, and the and certainly, why bother? Because it's just going to spoil my beautiful radio uh, lipton ray. Um, 
Also, uh, when they were buried, they were reported as having anomalous tans and in the extreme case, orange skin and gray hair, which sounds like elliptic rays to me. Uh, yeah. So I guess what we're, we're uh, verging toward here is obviously this, there, we have to have a scenario where the investigators investigate another snowy mountain uh, group of people being uh, uh, wiped out uh, with uh, weird symptoms uh, that the government is trying to uh, cover up or perhaps get you to investigate and cover up if we're playing the, as a terrorist. Uh, and then you research the uh, someone in the, in the group with their uh, history ability uh, says, this reminds me of the dial off pops incident. And then they go off and research that and it has some sort of a modern thing happening in the modern day. So right. uh, perhaps they find uh, perhaps this current case also has mysterious glowing orange globes and a blue white sphere seen um, uh, um, uh, in the sky nearby, just as was the case at the Dyatlov Pass incident. Although uh, in fairness, those were all reported like months and years later. Uh, right. When people were still making a big deal out of it. Right. Because, of course, and, and to go back to fun ruining, uh, people add cool things to uh, elliptonic mysteries to make them more mysterious. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. But for our purpose, they're helping us uh, build our scenario. So uh, option two, uh, other than uh, uh, humans uh, misusing elliptic ray technology or uh, using it on, and uh, uh, ha- having these people as collateral damage is uh, this could be a UFO attack. That sounds exactly right. like uh, the effect of a, a ray being beamed from a UFO. Um, and so uh, the next question, our mystery is, uh, what was the true nature of the mission that the Soviets suppressed? This is obviously they sent these people on this mission, because why else would you, as you pointed out, go uh, into the Urals in February? That's because they were looking into something. And it may be that they were uh, investigating uh, some sort of uh, archaeological find that had suddenly been, uh, you know, the somebody who'd been herding their uh, uh, goats around had, had find, found something strange and you uh, were out looking for it. And the, the original owners of that technology uh, came back to pick it up and zapped the people who had it with their uh, UFO ray. So this could be reptoids, man. Right. To back that story up, there is the fact that uh, the oldest member of the expedition, Semyon Zolotaryov, was added to the expedition almost at the last minute. Nobody knew him, but he was recommended by uh, mutual friends of Dyatlov. And so he very much seems like the KGB X-Files guy who is uh, inserted in to tell them that their patriotic duty to the party requires skiing up the Ural Mountains to don't go there. And that he is the guy who is sort of the the, inc- the inciting uh, uh, in- incident of this case. Um, we also have the strong possibility of Yeti, uh, which has been brought up by uh, leading cable channels. <laughs> 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 that there is a, um, uh, a ment or an almaty or uh, are the are the local names for the weird uh, 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 Bigfoot guy that's seen uh, slurping around in the Ural Mountains, and that uh, Yetis could be a uh, unknown compelling force, and that Yeti smacking you with his big fat Yeti arm might be the same uh, sort of cause that that leaves you with uh, broken bones, but um, uh, not a lot of skin uh, injury because their arms are obviously furry. Yes, and and well-known Trotskyites. Uh, yes, so. the downside there is there were no footprints. And if there's one thing we know about Yeti, they leave a bunch of footprints. Right. 
Well, yes, unless they arrange an avalanche afterward to cover their, their to tracks. cover up the footprints. Yes, yeah. it, it's only Yetis who get caught who leave footprints. And in the tradition of adding things later, uh, two people interviewed, I think, fifty years after the case. 40 years after the case, said, oh, yeah, we saw big footprints. Yeah. But then we were told to say nothing about them. That, that is the so advantage are. of a uh, story that's been partially covered up, is you can pick anything to have been covered up that <laughs> right. your investigators... <laughs> and you can't even say, well, the Soviets wouldn't have covered that up. Just listen to yourself. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, we learned all of our cover-up techniques at the Art of Artatus from the Soviets. Uh, right. You know, with less murder. Um, and uh, other things it could be, obviously, this could be the compelling unknown force can be magical in nature. So yep. uh, there could be some sort of eldritch activity in, in them there, Martins, that you were uh, trying to uh, pick up on. And of course, uh, if the Soviets uh, discovered that there was efficacious magic in the world, especially offensive magic with this strong kinetic force, uh, they might well send uh, uh, a party up there to find out what's going on. And uh, the mountain wizards... Uh, perhaps objected to uh, some yeah. sniffing around trying to steal their arcane secrets. And uh, People have it, blamed uh, the local Mansi people for killing these people because there was a case, uh, and this is so mean, there was a case uh, that they based it just on the theory that the Mansi killed a bunch of other guys who climbed up a mountain. Uh, but that was in the 30s. So they obviously, they got that out of their system. Um, <laughs> and they climbed a magic mountain, not a dead mountain right so maybe there's maybe there, there there were no hard feelings is what people say and then they come back to the whole no footprints uh thing that would ex that, that would argue that no the mansi did not kill them but if they kill them by magic you don't need footprints you just sit back at mansi town and say infrasound cast at range yes um and of course the uh i think yet another answer that uh, uh that your investigators depending on what uh, uh setting you're using uh, it might have turned out to be the dreaded, uh, rare, uh, but also highly dangerous snow shoggoth. Mm, the snoggoth. Um, because, of course, uh, they don't leave footprints. Uh, they can uh, operate under the snow. And a uh, snowy pseudopod uh, could uh, also be responsible for uh, uh, broken bones uh, without uh, serious bruising due to the resonance of their strike and uh, could have easily either caused someone to bite off their own tongue or could have... Uh, you know, taking a tongue as a souvenir. Snow shoggoths are known to be like that. Right. Obviously, also, you have glowing spheres, people missing body parts, and uh, strange radar activity. Migo. Could be Migo. Migo. Could be uh, Yog sothoth uh, uh, phasing in. Yep. Could be, uh, He's a sphere. Yeah. Or a lot be, of spheres. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, that could be uh, sort of the, the backwash of uh, the opening of a gate uh, that uh, just sort of uh, knocked everybody out of their tent. So, um, there's there's really... You know, once you set aside the likely explanation, there's all manner of exciting uh, uh, things that could be behind this and that uh, our investigators could be looking into in uh, Colorado or uh, on the uh, in the Peruvian mountains or, or wherever it is that you uh, decide you want to uh, stage your own sequel to the uh, Dyatlov Pass incident. And indeed, the, the Russians staged their own sequel to it, uh, the Chivrui Pass incident which happened uh, in 1973. And that's in the Kola Peninsula because people are like, the Urals are too nice. Let's go somewhere worse. <laughs> well, it, it could be that whoever was, was behind this went, well, we thought there was, there was an 
isolated enough place to have our sinister base. Or a lift-on test. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, have we have we left any uh, any pearls on the ground in this incident? Um, I think that uh, we well we've left uh, a lot of tongues. We left like eight tongues. I don't know what people are complaining. Um, the other, I guess, thing that we could maybe mention about the Dyatlov Pass incident is that uh, it can also be, I think, a really good uh, sort of a setup for your for your LARP situation is you are, are, are playing a thing. You pass out a bunch of Russian names and then you reveal, oh, right, your name is Dyatlov. And then you just start and off you go. And I think you that have a whole gotta, lot of character interaction uh, where you uh-huh. uh, petition one another emotionally. And then uh, when you run out of time, an avalanche kills you all. Exactly. An avalanche kills you or Miko or Lipton. Yeah, and then you go have a breakfast. Uh, this could also be a superhero origin story. The one survivor of the incident is the one who is uh, imbued with the Lipton rays or with the uh, the uh, uh, toxic blood of the snow shoggoth. Yeah, in, in, in real history, the one survivor was imbued with a stomach flu, which is why he did not go up the pass with the rest of them. Uh, yes, that's that's the way to survive <laughs> is, is, again, don't go on the don't, don't go. go there mountain. That's, that's survival uh, uh, tip basics, folks. And, and I think um, uh, on that sound advice for all elliptony, uh, we can close off not just this segment, but perhaps, Robin... Perhaps an entire podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stop this podcast from dying on a mountain by emulating beloved Patreon backers... Fred Kish. John Kingdom. Joshua Hillerup. Lewis R. Evans. And Gwendolyn Schmidt. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new ultra on-brand design, Gaming Hut. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>